So you go from a nasty case of censorship and a kind of world-class case of virus identification to a disastrous period of inaction when you had to get ready. What they didn't do is tell people to go see GPs. What they didn't do is give people the primary health advice to be like, this is what happens if you're sick. Don't waste hospital beds. And so people die. Hello and welcome to China Talk. Given how the show's topics have drifted over time, I think this name fits a little better than China Econ Talk. Also, I have a big announcement. China Talk has joined the Lawfare Network, alongside shows like the Lawfare Podcast, the Cyber Law Podcast, and Rational Security. As such, the mix of topics going forward will lean a little more towards national security and foreign policy issues. Finally, I want to apologize for my mic quality of the show. I'm in New York, not Beijing for the time being, and don't have my usual setup. If you're in town, though, and want to meet up, please reach out to me on Twitter or at J-O-R-S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R at gmail.com. How has the distinct nature of local central relations in the Chinese system impacted its response to coronavirus? To discuss, we have on Ryan Manuel, Managing Director of Official China, a consultancy that goes deep into CCP regulations and policy. He previously taught at HKU and ANU, as well as worked for the Australian government. Our wide-ranging conversation starts with Wuhan and SARS, and then broadens out into how the history of rural healthcare in China explains dynamics that impeded the initial Chinese response. Next, we focus on how Hu created a model of managing local central relations that she studied and took to the next level by scrapping collective responsibility and working through party as opposed to government channels. Finally, we apply these themes to the PLA structure. Ryan, welcome to China Talk. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's kick it off with a recap of some of the institutional failings that contributed to the coronavirus outbreak. Li Wenliang, what did he do and how was he treated and why? Li Wenliang is a doctor. He's an ophthalmologist who stayed in touch with all his mates from medical school via WeChat. And as part of that, on the 30th of December, he texted a whole bunch of mates to say, hey, there's a range of cases at my hospital, which is the, the sort of Wuhan Central Hospital, it's one of the largest ones in Wuhan, city of 11 million or so. And when he texted them, some other people texted back and they said, we're seeing some cases too. And the vibe was, don't go to the market. There's a giant uh, fish market. It's, it's an everything market. It's, it's the biggest market in Wuhan. He said, the cases we're seeing are, look like they're all related. And at the same time that's going on, there is an official warning happening from the local authorities. So the way the Chinese system works is that you have a, a local center for disease control, and that is meant to be independent from the hospitals. And that feeds into the level above center for disease control. And then that feeds into the centrist center for disease control. And it's basically a bunch of people sitting in a room checking every inpatient case at a hospital and then matching that to see if there are patterns coming through that mean that you say, okay, this is a bit worrying. And they had spotted a pattern at a day or two before Dr. Lee was texting his mates. And so he picks up the phone and then a couple of days, the next day, it's, it's very late when he texts his friends. It's, it's about midnight, but being doctors, they worked quite late. The next morning he gets into work. And he has a visit from the administrator of his hospital being like, hey, saw those texts. And he's like, well, you're not in the WeChat group. So that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> this, 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 in, in clearly, this is a reenactment, somewhat undramatic reenactment of what happened. But it's, this is based on, on various reconstructions and things that he wrote at the time. 
and interviews he gave with various Chinese media before um, he passed away. Administrators says, don't do that. Uh, and then the next day after that, a whole uh, seven other doctors are publicly castigated for spreading false rumors on WeChat, which is the same thing that Dr. Lee's hospital administrator had come talk to him about. And then two days after those seven doctors are castigated, he himself is taken to a police station and made to sign a very unusual document that is, you're going to hear a lot about documents, by the way, so uh, be be warned. Uh, I like documents, which is not the best for my social life, but is professionally occasionally <laughs> useful. And so he has to sign this funny document, which is basically a like, I understand that this could be bad. And it's the, it's the, I think there were four of them. The four understands Chinese politics as, as, as regular listeners would know, love numbers and things. The four understands the eight, whatever's. Um, (laughs) So he signs this document and then he goes back to work, works incredibly hard. And on the 11th of January, he starts to notice he has a fever. And so he self quarantines and, then unfortunately he has the coronavirus and a week, two weeks later he passes from it. Uh, less than two weeks, about you know, 10, 12 days later he passes away. And the reason I go through this to such exhaustive detail in these dates is that it actually matches very well the cycle of the Chinese official response to this epidemic, which is to say that it's not as simple as being China did bad, China did good. Some things were done really well. Um, so in this period where I'm talking about when they were scolding Dr. Lee, which is appalling from both a, well, from all sorts of levels, where do we start, right? Like it's not what you want to be doing either at a societal level or in a public health level. But there are also these other things going on where they're like, oh, my gosh, there's a virus. And then they send it to all these various labs around the country who are all competing with each other, which – gets a bit nasty later on, but at the time is incredibly efficient because you just get this giant big bang of activity and suddenly you've got this virus identified and you've got people working on tests for it in absolutely no time, in, in, in I mean, astonishingly quick time. We need to remember this is about 10 times faster than normal responses in terms of identifying the virus and the cases and all those things. Especially compared to 2003. Well, 2003 is a, a, a different case. So 2003, what happened is that basically it was a local epidemic that didn't get out of hand. That there was sort of everyone knew what was going on, but it was it was held at that local level. Uh, when we say local, by the way, we mean Guangdong, which is a province of 50, 60 million people. So it, it, local can be quite large in China, but... But it didn't actually, you you had this dynamic in 2003, which is where people, this is pre-WeChat, obviously. So people were text messing each other what was going on with this virus, with SARS, which is the one you're talking about, 2003. People were actually text messing each other enormously. And that was happening on the 11th and the 12th of February in 2003. And then the 13th of February, the Guangdong uh, Health Ministry or the Bureau of the Ministry of Health uh, actually gave a press conference, uh, which is very rare. And they said, yeah, look, we don't know what's going on. And people are like, well, that's a bit suboptimal. Um, maybe you should find out. And they kept holding regular press conferences until late February. And then in a pattern that you're about to hear happen in Wuhan as well, 
there's these big meetings that happen, the two, the two big meetings, which is basically where all of China's government, uh, you, you have a national meeting where they decide all legislation and budgets and priorities and top leaders talk to all the government, local government representatives and all of China shuts down officially for a week or so in March. They're called the, the two meetings. And so you have these two meetings coming up. And so Beijing says to Guangdong, Yo, stop that. And Guangdong, of course, says, you know, how high, boss? Tell me where to jump. Uh, Senses the cases and nothing happens again until late March where one of the officials from Guangdong has contracted SARS, which is a more deadly version of the virus we're talking about, which is more deadly than the coronavirus that's happening now. And so that official goes to Beijing goes to the military hospital where all the top leaders and their families also get treated and spreads it to the hospital. And a lot of people die in Beijing in an outbreak. And so the people who get punished, and the government really hops to it after that in early April, but the people that get punished aren't the ones from Guangdong who had read the text messages and said, oh, yeah, we'll throw a wholesome kind of random press conferences. The people that get punished are the people in Beijing for being like, how did you let this virus get to Beijing? Um, so this is, again, this is the thing about China. Like, you, it's just, it's, I'd say it's an onion, but it's like an onion. It's like one of those giant pumpkins that people grow for fairs that are sort of 10 times normal human size. Imagine that sort of onion and, and you've got a level of the complexity of back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and these sort of different loops. And so this is to switch back to what we're talking about with this guy, Dr. Lee in Wuhan. This is that same problem there of, some things are done really well. So the virus is identified incredibly quickly, which was not the case in SARS. Um, if I may pause this lengthy anecdote to make it yet lengthier, but hopefully slightly funnier. Um, I shouldn't laugh about this, but this is incredible, which is that SARS also was bad because they didn't just spend six weeks looking for the virus, which was sort of common worldwide timetable at the time. They spent six weeks convinced that it was an STD and being sent a sample, which was later proven to be chlamydia. Uh, because what had happened was that the CDC at the time had a very antagonistic relationship with the hospitals. And so they went to the hospital and went, yo, you got to give me a case patient. And the doctor's like, no, that patient will die. SARS is pretty deadly. And they're like, I don't care. We need a sample. And so the doctor switched, to the best of my knowledge, switched the chlamydia sample on hand oh, with the... Uh, SARS sample. And so not only did SARS not get recognized in time, it got recognized eventually as a sexually transmitted disease, which led to two months of the CDC in Beijing running around being like, yeah, but what about these sex lives, guys? Not liking this double... You're not liking this communicable pneumonia, but uh, yeah, respiratory disease, bad. STI and respiratory disease, banging bad. Sorry about that. Um, and apologies to my listener, I'm Australian. You'll also hear some quite black humour that comes with 15 years of working on Chinese politics, I'm afraid. So what they ended up doing was having capitalist Hong Kong, where they had a, a horrible outbreak of SARS due to um, some bad plumbing in a, in a housing estate. I mean, we say housing estate's a very uh, salubrious one, but, but um, yeah, in, in public housing in, in Hong Kong. And so uh, many, many people passed away from SARS. Uh, during 2003 in Hong Kong, but they got a sample from Hong Kong and sent it back to Beijing during this period where they were smacking the Beijing mayor. Um, so yeah, so the head of the CDC got into trouble. The Minister of Health got into trouble for um, 
maybe <laughs> focusing too much on not keeping his power. Anyway, insert your own somewhat grotty metaphor here. And the Guangdong people remained unpunished. And and again, that's the thing with Wuhan is that going back to what happened there, they found out what the virus was. And then the local officials in Wuhan did pretty much nothing because they had their own version of these these two meetings where the whole city and first you had the Wuhan ones and then you had the Hubei. Wuhan is the biggest city in Hubei. And so then first the Wuhan ones, then the Hubei ones. You have those meetings and so the city and the province shut down officially. All the newspapers only talk about what's happening at these meetings. You only have one media story of this outbreak, which is on a, a local newspaper. One of the local newspapers for that district published something on the virus on, I think, the 13th of January. And so you just get no information from the 5th, 6th to the 18th or the 19th. And so that two weeks is incredibly vital. So you go from a nasty case of censorship and a kind of world-class case of virus identification to a disastrous period of inaction when you had to get ready. I mean, the, the test kits, there's various quirks of the Chinese system mean that those quirks meant that that period, you really, really, really needed to be stockpiling test kits, warning the population to take public health measures, washing your hands, wearing masks, things like that, all the things that we now know more and more about every day as, as it's spread worldwide and, and it becomes an issue for many countries. But at that period, they didn't do any of those things. And then the 20th of January, uh, Xi Jinping himself made a, a public announcement, a declaration, sort of martial law on virus was declared, um, not quite on the 20th, but pretty much uh, the state council, which is China's government, also held a meeting about it, which unified and coordinated all the different government actors. Um, there's a party government divide, which again, you're going to hear a lot about in this podcast. Uh, and basically, crazy stuff happened then you then spent they then locked down Wuhan in this method of quarantine last seen in the sort of at, at that scale anyway in the sort of 14th and 15th century so we estimate there's somewhere between six and seven million people left in the city but still that's that's the size of the biggest city of my country imagine shutting down half of New York and you've got I mean, technically shutting down New York, but just New York over Christmas maybe where lots of people leave the city. And you've got a good analogy for what happened within two days of Xi Jinping, or three days of Xi Jinping declaring that this was very serious indeed. Sure. Uh, yeah, you write that. Occasionally, um, top leaders send out signals so powerful that all local leaders know to drop everything and focus only on that sole objective. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's that, and that signaling system is, for better or worse, what I've kind of, I guess, devoted my adult life to, um, for worse in many ways. Uh, so, so yeah, those signals go out and, and you have to measure how strong they are because that's what, I mean, China has 90 million Chinese Communist Party members. They all know these signals backwards. They get trained in them. I mean, it's mainly how I trained myself in them is you, you go to any bookstore and there's a whole section of manuals 
devoted to training people in in how to read the signs. Um, you have to sit tests, you have to sign documents, you have to sit classes once a week on party thought, which is Xi Jinping thought these days. And that means that, it, not just that the class is getting longer, I know it's a sort of... Um, <laughs> uh, and so you, you have this cycle where if Xi Jinping says something and the government acts and it uses certain types of phrases, then pretty much anything is permissible. Um, although it's also worth noting that after SARS, China changed its laws so that local governments could self-declare these types of quarantines through declaring an epidemic, uh, but they had to wait for a central signal. But that law clashes with another law that was made uh, a bit afterwards, which is on emergencies, where you don't have to wait for a central government signal to say it's an emergency and then you can do all sorts of measures so actually say for example the market i told you about that dr lee was texting his mates he thought the virus was coming from that actually got shut down um two days before he had to go to the police station they shut the whole food market down um i mean there were some people still selling things on the side they didn't do it in a particularly sanitary way it wasn't handled very well but by declaring an emergency rather than an epidemic you can actually act very quickly in china as well without having to wait for the central government approval. Um, what Xi Jinping did on the 20th was he's like, not just this is an epidemic, i.e. like activate that law. He said, this is a very, very big deal indeed. And everything had to jump to it. So let's go a little deeper into the the sort of, the sort of skill of reading the tea leaves. Maybe talk a little bit, Ryan, about the sort of agony and ecstasy of spending lots and lots of time with official Chinese documents. I got stuck, stuck <laughs> reading official documents for my master's and my PhD in the UK quite a long time ago. And then I did it a lot when I worked for the government um, in Australia. And then sort of when I went back to academia after working for the government, I guess I just kept digging. Um, there aren't a whole bunch of ecstasies, but it's so incredibly important. I mean, the number of people who just say China and and sort of my blood pressure peaks to like need to go to the hospital and go past the testing areas levels because you're like okay which part of china and 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 so for a long time i didn't actually work on documents specifically i also worked on organizations and mapping out where everybody sat because you can't understand the documents without first having a framework for everyone sits because of course you know if the ministry of health puts out something that says a and the party committee for a certain jurisdiction which has an individual who's always held accountable healthcare puts out a document saying b and there's a conflict who's going to win changes things enormously and so the type of document is important and reading documents is important but also being really specific on who says what is important and i guess the only ecstasy comes when you have that moment when you put the two together and you're like, oh, wow, that explains this random thing that made no sense to me, which doesn't mean that China makes any sense to you because the place is one giant pile of random things that still make no sense. But every now and again, you, you have that moment where you're like, oh, that is completely understandable behavior if we trace the documents. 
So let's um uh, so let's jump into your uh your your PhD thesis, which takes on um which which sort of uses this methodology to explain a a fascinating conundrum that I knew nothing about, but um affected hundreds of millions of people over the past fifty years. So rural healthcare in China had these incredible fluctuations of uh, the percentage of people that bought into insurance programs. So you want to, Ryan, start out by laying out the conundrum of what happened over the past 70 years? Yeah, I, this isn't a million miles from what we were talking about before with these these doctors and the health, uh, you know, and, and SARS and various things. It, it just applies, which is this puzzle that came. I, I spent my undergrad years working in Latin America, and I was always baffled by how some things could be incredibly competent and yet some things incredibly not. And so when you start working on China, of course, you know, it's very easy for us to fall into that trap of being like, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and then people are like, oh, that's a CCP talking point. And you're like, well, both are right. <laughs> you know, the, the economic growth in China is astonishing and, and has been for a long time. Uh, and at the same point, some things have gone really poorly in China and and even just, although less so in Beijing now, but when I first went to Beijing, you know, just, just walking on the street every day you saw this, you'd see some things and you'd be like, oh my gosh, that has opened in three days and then you see somebody there, you know, you see some method of primary healthcare which uses, say, traditional Chinese medicine that you're like, yeah, that's suboptimal. So the one I particularly got interested in was this sort of when is the Chinese state good at providing a public good? And so I picked the one public good. I wrote a very opinionated young man master's thesis where I said that the new cooperative medical scheme, which is a social health institution scheme, was poorly designed and it won't succeed. Got a good grade, so, you know, yay for me. Uh, and it's completely really wrong. And yeah. so about three months into my PhD, when the, the sort of yearly enrollment stats came out, and I was like, wow, I'm really glad that my uh, thesis got passed before, <laughs> before the data came out. Because in the, in the year that this uh, brilliant masterwork by this you know, young rising star of the China studies world uh, was submitted, uh, actually the health insurance scheme worked pretty bloody well indeed. Uh, they enrolled 400 million people, in fact, while I was busy lecturing them on how badly designed it was. Um, <laughs> Chinese Communist Party won, <laughs> right, manual zero, uh, <laughs> in a scoreboard in which I've, I've yet to achieve parity <laughs> in life, actually, frankly. And so... The PhD. I'm still still pulling for you, Ryan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, look. <laughs> so, uh, what happened is that you have this this trouble of being like, okay, why is why is this system worked when so many as many other schemes has failed? And so, for my PhD, I went through every time the government tried to introduce a rural health insurance scheme. And so rural health insurance, I mean, to any listener is pretty easy to understand, which is just, uh, it's the way of getting reimbursed after you see the doctor. Um, the Chinese method is kind of funny, which is, and that's why arrogant young man Ryan uh, wrote his rather horrible thesis about why the new cooperative medical scheme wouldn't work when it did, uh, which is that if you see a doctor, then afterwards you get the money back, which is a bad way of running insurance. Um, and those of 
you know, the, the older listeners here would remember many, many debates about Obamacare and that debate still into some ways running in the US, uh, in, in other countries. Universal health insurance has been around for a very long time and it's either provided by your employer, which is known as the German model, uh, or it's implied it's it's provided to everybody. The Chinese model is is everybody gets it. So you have to make sure that every single member of rural China when they see a doctor, they have a stamp that says, oh, yeah, this is covered or not covered, and you get your money back. And so let's just pause and think about how hard it is for any government to get 800 million people that stamp um, just as a logistics exercise, right? And yet China did it twice. Uh, they did it under the Mao period during the Cultural Revolution, which is, again, kind of amazing when you have the other so Ryan, just a little clearer on like what like the stamp means. Uh, the stamp is is sort of a metaphor. It's 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 actually not a stamp. It's more like it's it's a way of ma- of of you knowing that you're not going to have to pay, or in modern days that when you pay, you'll get something back. It's a guarantee. It's an assurance. Um, that's that's what insurance you know is in. That's that's the whole point. Is that. Seeing the doctor is hard. Seeing the doctor is expensive, as the Chinese phrase somewhat pithily goes. And you have to know when you see a doctor that you you have it paid for. And so healthcare, for example, during Mao's time, I mean, there's no real household income because you're working in these collectives, which means that you, know, you, you get paid in work points, so to speak. And you have some very limited private income. You have some very limited private markets, but they're kept to themselves. And then how you have this issue of, okay, well, what happens when I get sick? Like, how do I stop that kind of, you know, that, that traditional problem of communism whereby the, the, the cadres have their, you know, the senior people in the party uh, get treated incredibly well and everybody else just doesn't. And so the method that China used is in, in the Mao period was despite this great carnage of, of the Cultural Revolution, you have people, you know, being paraded through the streets. You have years and thousands of years of societal order being overturned, whereby the teachers and the traditional kind of respected ones are being paraded in front of you in giant white caps and beaten often to death in the city, in the sites where um, these, these sort of young zealots are being told from Mao that they need to rebel and that that's right. And then during that period, bizarrely, you also had everybody given access to better health care um, because they go see somebody and it's free for starters. It's, it's because that person, the doctor that they're seeing, they're called a barefoot doctor, um, is just a normal worker who's been trained in primary health care, i.e. washing your hands, basic medicines, which are collected around the area often. So they picked the traditional Chinese medicines that are still useful sometimes to deal with basic primary health issues. You know, we're talking like viruses here, things like that. Uh, and then if it gets really bad, then when they go to the bigger hospital in the area nearby, is free because they have insurance. Um, and so that actually bizarrely worked very well. I'm not saying that the Cultural Revolution was a high point of Chinese society at all. But you have this period where people were able to on incredibly low wages and in a very difficult time where there's you know, far too many deaths from random acts of violence 
you also have average life expectancy rising dramatically. And then the 1980s happen and China's economy does incredibly well, um, you know, for, for which we can we discuss on this. Right, let's many let's slow down. Let's slow, let's slow down a little bit. Let's yeah. slow down a little bit. Um, so, you know, I, I like the idea of uh, Bernie listening to this podcast and saying, well, you know, you got to at least give Mao credit because, you know, he gave health care to the people. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about perhaps the most famous uh, aspect of uh, healthcare during this time, the, the Barefoot Doctors campaign? Barefoot Doctors weren't so much a campaign as a, a response to this dynamic of, of like, how on earth do we square this circle of we need to give people um, primary healthcare, but we also, you know, we need to, to meet our, our targets in the fields. We need to meet our grain quotas and things like that. And so they were just an experiment. Um, and then Mao and, I mean, Bernie can jump up and down here if he wants, um, Mao, to his credit, signed off and said, yeah, that's a good idea. But th- these were invented by local governments. And this is a big part of the Chinese experience, which is that local governments are full of very smart, hardworking people who figure out often quite brilliant ways to deal with often kind of silly orders coming from above. And the Barefoot Doctors were a great way of boosting supply of healthcare professionals. So they're very crude. Um, And that actually became a problem in the 80s, which we'll get to later. But they're very, very crude. But obviously, if you're sitting in a field and it's like, well, you can spend half your day inside-ish under some shade, uh, seeing folk taking their pulse, or you can keep picking cotton. Uh, Unsurprisingly, you're probably going to take the seeing folk. Um, And, you know, it was a real badge of honour to be made a barefoot doctor. And so you suddenly have a supply of lots of kind of basic but effective primary health. To take a modern context, imagine if every day somebody comes check up on you when you've been unwell, they make sure that you're taking whatever medicines you're taking, they bring you water, they ensure that you stay away from everybody else. Um, You know, this is good practice. This is really good public health. And China benefited from it enormously. Uh, And so that was the barefoot doctor system. And it was praised around the world. There was an entire World Health Organization conference on it in 1978 as China was emerging from the Cold Revolution after Mao died uh, to basically be like, yo, how do we copy this and take it everywhere else in the world? And, um, you know, the Chinese also sent out doctors for example in the 50s and 60s but interestingly they never exported this barefoot doctors program because they didn't see it as modern they more exported their their very good other doctors to to help train other other communist countries um sometimes non-communist countries as well um albeit ones that had friendly relations with china and that's what led to things like the cuban healthcare system which is very topical at the moment because it takes advantage of having a communist party, which is that you can reach into people's lives much more than I would find acceptable, for example, or I think the majority of our listeners would. But that does allow you 
from a very narrow public health perspective to also do a lot of things that are really difficult because you have this way of talking to people every day. You have somebody actually held accountable and responsible for checking up that you've had enough to drink and you've taken your, albeit basic medicines, but a lot of the time it is just basic medicine that does the job. You're not clogging a hospital with the flu. You're not taking up a bed that needs to be used by someone who's had a burst appendix or something like that, for example. And so it, it raises the average life expectancy very quickly in a way that, say, you see also in somewhere like Cuba today, where despite the fact that hospital equipment can be incredibly rudimentary uh, and appalling in qualities at times, you also have very high life expectancy for people because most diseases that, that kill people until you get to a certain level of affluence are preventable through basic primary care. And when you've got a lot of people doing basic primary care, i.e. barefoot doctors, you can prevent a lot of needless deaths. And so in that sense, I don't think Bernie could say that Mao saves Chinese healthcare because it's, as we'll hear when we get to the present day and as we sort of touched on briefly talking about the Wuhan epidemic before, which is now, I guess, a global pandemic. What you had was this system that Mao signed off on which put a greater focus on public health. And that is that is stillable by any country. I mean, imagine if you take AmeriCorps or a million strong or any initiative in America and make that a million people who are paid just to go around and check up on old folk, and you'd actually get a boost in, I would imagine, average life expectancy. And it's particularly acute in developing countries. I mean, Mao didn't make that, but local government officials did, and Mao allowed it to become a national model. And yeah, actually, a lot of countries probably should copy it. Let's go into the central local dynamics that Mao ended up using to be, enable him to create this system and, and get these people this limited, um, but you know, relatively effective form of healthcare because he actually spent two years fumbling around, not quite getting the system to listen to him. Even even when the system did listen to him, he wrote one character, I mean, three strokes, which is good. Oh, it's more than three strokes. Hang on, one, two, three. Anyway, five strokes. Um, never learn Chinese, kids. Um, it's... You, you guys always do it on your phones now, Plico or something. Um, we, don't, we don't learn how to write anymore. Really? This, is the, this is the magic of, of, of oh, learning oh, Mandarin. Yeah, 2020. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop, stop gloating. Um, the, anyway, um, God, I sound like one of those sort of old grandpas. You kids get off my public health lawn. Um, Mal- I mean, you know, 10 years from now, no one is going to learn how Chinese, period, because we'll have, you know, like those, like, you know, so much Scott Adams. Adams, things in our ears, right? Yeah, totally. Um, that'd be interesting. Uh, <laughs> so, so I still wouldn't understand what's going on, except <laughs> this time I can't blame my bad language skills. Um, so Mao's problem was probably, it, it was definitely getting local leaders to do what he said. Uh, that's just a problem of every Chinese leader ever, which is you run a gigantic country with, a lot of people um, as an empire for obviously many centuries and getting your word out is very hard. And so 
as with all emperors, Mao was very good at using symbols and signals and codes almost to talk to local governments and to local officials and to people and say, this is what I want to happen. And in this case, for example, the the famous health insurance scheme that I've now bored you on for five, 10 minutes, it, it really was just him writing good in a copy of the People's Daily. Uh, but it was a certain type of editorial in the People's Daily being published at a time when to even stick that in a People's Daily was an enormous risk. And so you actually had two, three years where it's not clear where Mao, I mean, he, he, he sort of wrote good on the People's Daily in 1965, but that was also at about the same time he called doctors all giant scapegoats and, and basically like pests and plagues upon humanity that should be attacked. <laughs> I'm not actually making that up. Um, that should be attacked. No, I, lo- I, lo- yeah, sorry. I love the fact, though, that Mao, um, you know, uses traditional Chinese medicine as like a way to get people healthcare on the cheap. But him, but he himself, like, thinks it's totally BS and only trusts Western trained doctors. No, it's actually the opposite. This is really interesting. He, he is smashing doctors for being not communist enough. His, his attack on doctors was by implication Western trained. Doctors. I mean, China had Western-trained doctors. I mean, well, they had. Oh, that's a bit arrogant to say Western-trained, but they had they had a, a system of medicine that is Western. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and they were his his target. And traditional Chinese medicine, in that sense, um, he believed in to some extent. If we trust his physician, who wrote a very salacious book about um, the private life of Chairman Mao, which is great fun, by the way. What more happened was that. Again, in a pattern that we see again and again in China, you have this central crude kind of like, oh, just figure it out. Like Western doctors, bad. You know, anything not communist, bad. Teachers, bad. Authority, bad. And then they're like, you know, workers, good. Students, good. And they're like, all right, so we need some healthcare. Let's turn some workers into doctors. And also we have no money. And so what is available to us are traditional Chinese remedies because, of course, they grow usually in the place near where you live because that's how they became traditional Chinese remedies. And so combining, I mean, in that classic, it's madness that it even happened. And then at the same point, you're kind of like, who are these local officials that came up with this and made it work well enough and had this dynamic in three years where they managed to show enough results that it, got up to Beijing again so that people actually listen to them again. Um, it's it's the sort of, you know, you talk about hacker mentality, that sort of Silicon Valley. I mean, you, you want to find hacker mentality, go find a Chinese Communist Party country because, I mean, they, they those guys are good. I mean, good. Like, <laughs> I mean, imagine, just, just seriously, put yourself in the head of somebody, so you're told that everything you've believed in your entire life about responsibility and accountability is over. You, as a Communist Party cadre, are also suspect. You suddenly have to report not just to your old systems where it was a party government split, but you have a military representative who often these days is a kid. I mean, an actual kid telling you what to do, running your jurisdiction. You have a bunch of scared popular scarred by the events of the last few years and then you're told you have to also 
run the show, and in return, you manage to figure out that by putting some people to become doctors and picking local herbs and calling them medicine, but then following principles of, of primary health. And by the way, that book, that's the other thing that helped is you have a very literate population by then. And that the center, uh, some, some doctors, their response to being called scapegoats and some of the worst of the worst and being threatened, having their lives threatened was writing a manual in how to do best practice public health. And those people, as often happens in China, are genuine unsung heroes of, of their time. Because that manual got sent out, they cunningly disguised the manual under a, a revolutionary tract. They said, this is the public health committee documentation of the revolutionary committee of the following region. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, these, these people are brilliant at playing a system. And thus you get China from the top policy, from the bottom counter policy. And every now and again, uh, stopped watches right twice a day. You know, every now and again, the, they synchronize in a way that gets some results where you just look at it and you just be like, yeah, you know, why didn't somebody else think of that? I mean, I grew up in the desert, for example, of Australia. Uh, I, I, you, know, you, you don't have much access to healthcare up there either. And it's a 12 hour drive to the sort of big city nearby where you do have access to healthcare. It's that same thing where you just look at it and you go, oh, this is what people do. They make do. They figure out sort of solutions where no one's ever going to come see you. You know, no one's going to come open a clinic in some crappy middle of nowhere town in Australia. You really do have this thing where it's it's like little isolated worlds where people are trying to maximize under some horrible conditions and every now and again they succeed. And um, if Bernie, you know, if, if people want to claim that that is deliberate, I would take offense to that if people want to say that the outcome is good i would definitely support that um it's it's frankly very chinese <laughs> it's people patching together a solution that sometimes is utterly brilliant because you have a lot of very very smart people uh, well educated who really care about their communities let's go post mal what happens after decollectivization to this whole scheme which albeit patched together, seems to be doing relatively well for the for bang, the majority of, of for rural buck. China. Bang bang for buck. I mean, when there's zero bucks there's zero bucks and you actually have stuff happening, it's I mean average life expectancy then was I think sixty eight, sixty nine years, which is quite world class. It's not far off developed countries in an economy which is incredibly underdeveloped. But Mao doesn't but, – but so Mao dies, Dung comes in. Dung gets this cellular center-local experimentation thing incredibly well. He also gets how to give coded signals incredibly well. I mean he runs a government effectively for 11 years or at least takes the credit for running a government effectively for 11 years while his only government position being chairman of the Chinese Bridge Association, the card game, not the building <laughs> association. Uh, that might actually do something. Um, contact bridge. And so Don comes in, but he has this real vision of modernization. And there are a lot of smart people that, you know, this is a really well-covered area of Chinese history. But in Dong's head is very much China must become modern. The four modernizations, we must build these things. He doesn't see this barefoot doctor as modern. He sees them as people who, his speech is that they should wear cloth shoes and then one day maybe they'll wear proper shoes. 
And so he allows, uh, he dismantles the commune system, which of course allows some form of rural economy to develop, as a rural market economy or or quasi-market economy to develop, uh, and and China takes off, grows outside the plan, as Barry Norton called it so many years ago. And the problem with that from a health perspective is that at the same time, you have this issue endemic to any kind of healthcare, which is that of providers having information asymmetry over patients, i.e. I can charge as much as I want and I know what's going on and you probably don't. So unlike before where I don't have any incentive to do that because I only get paid in work points, when the economy opens up, these barefoot doctors convert themselves into, into real doctors these doctors then start charging people and healthcare becomes extraordinarily expensive in the 1980s. Uh, And so you get this period where basically social health insurance collapses because it's very easy to run social health insurance when you run a commune or a a socialist work unit because, of course, you just enroll people and then you pay them through work points or through output of grain or through some other measure that, can be determined centrally. When you get rid of the communes, that's great because people can sell their grain on the open market. They have an incentive to to grow more grain, say. But at the same point, it means that you have to convince them to pay into a fund, which means that they trust that that guarantee I was talking about, that when you see the doctor, the doctor will, you'll get reimbursed for it. As in this fund, this, this insurance fund will make sure that you get paid for seeing the doctor. And they went and collapsed big time. And so you see this incredibly sharp collapse, 82, 83, 84. And with that goes the entire system of rural healthcare. And the reason I keep harping about rural healthcare is you've got to remember how much of China was rural at the time. It was 80 to 85% rural. And this is not, it's not an urban problem. It's, it's, it's you know, rural China is China for the, for the basic, from a public policy perspective in many ways. Sure. And that collapses. And so 85, you get people talking about the collapse of healthcare. You already get a Harvard study coming in. You get the World Health Organization being talked to. I mean, Dung was no idiot. This is not at all what he wanted, but he had that problem of he didn't see primary healthcare as as good as Western, for want of a better phrase, you know, more advanced healthcare. And so... It, it becomes a giant worry for China in the mid eighties. And then that problem persists actually to this day of to see a doctor is very expensive and that cost inflation has kept rising above even China's GDP, which has obviously done pretty darn well indeed. Um, the cost of seeing a doctor has increased more sharply than GDP every year. And so seeing a doctor just gets more and more expensive so you're succeeding in life. You're buying things. You're buying houses, cars. Well, not cars back then, but you know, bicycles, washing machines, the three things that spin, they called them. Um, <laughs> and you're seeing, though, a doctor put another layer on his house, which was a, a popular ditty at the time. Yeah, you, you have this issue where it costs a fortune. Everyone knows it's a problem, but what can you do about it? And so they decided as with Obamacare that I mentioned before, that the way they would fix this um, incredibly messy regulatory environment where 
each level of government can have its own regulations and then the centre doesn't really have the ability. The centre obviously can't tell all these barefoot doctors in the middle of nowhere what to do because how do you talk to them all? There's just no method. And so they decide, right, what we should do instead is get insurance going and that will mean that even if the cost of healthcare rises, people will still be reimbursed and they won't be angry at us for having such expensive healthcare. That's a disaster. Uh, and so they get many, many smart people in they run many schemes. They do it in the 90s. And then it gets such a problem that Jiang Zemin himself issues an extraordinarily rare document, uh, a Ding, which is the second highest document of the entire Chinese system. The, and the only one higher you never use because it's a Jui, which is like an excuse to argue over what it means. Uh, so, so you don't use a Jui for any sort of policy reason. It's, it's more for ideological stuff. And so issues a Jui Ding... And these cheating normally is pretty vague, right? Like as with anything, if a you know if you give an order, an executive order being like, "Yo, give me healthcare," that doesn't tend to be. And I expect the city of Cincinnati to have the following <laughs> breakdown of primary, yeah. secondary, and tertiary care. Um, that's pretty common. And so, but Jiang Zemin actually put targets on his. So this is as if President Trump goes, "I want healthcare," and I want. 48% insurance, and I want a case mix of the following breakdown. I mean, this is really specific stuff, and you never do that if you're the Chinese leader normally. It's incredibly, incredibly rare that you put targets on a dreading because a dreading is more saying, right, this is a decision. It has been decided. Now, all of you tell me what that means. Um, and, you know, you figure it out, and then you, you put up your interpretation of the decision, and then I'll tell you if I like it or not. But don't don't bother me with these petty details. I'm a very important. I've got a big country to run. Jiang Zemin puts that out. It works. Kind of, you see some shoots of growth for a year, and then nothing. So, I mean, at that point, you look at the Chinese healthcare system and you go, "What do they do?" There's this structural problem of information asymmetry, and there's no method of controlling cost inflation that has seemed to work. We have had, we've basically shot most of our powder as in we've, we've unleashed the highest decision we can, but it didn't work. And now how are we going to get anything to happen on healthcare when you got to remember this is Jung Zemin put out this order after he had just a sec effectively sacked 45 million people from their government jobs. I mean, this is not somebody that was, afraid of making big decisions at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the period we're talking about. And it's it's WTO sessions coming in. They've uh in one document they wiped out 10% of China's rules, regulations and laws. But they just cannot get health insurance to work. And then that's the sort of situation facing Hu Jintao when he comes to comes to the throne and suddenly he makes it work. Great. All right. So what was the magic sauce that who put into the mix? Whose genius was he figured out that everything relies on these local governments that we talked about, again, going right back to the start, being given incentives to make things happen. And that's actually a lot harder than it sounds, because if you're the head of a local government, say a county, the average county head has about 2000 indicators they're measured on. So it's always pretty easy to be like, oh, yeah, good order, bro. You know, okay. Okay, Kadri Boomer, um, I'm going to ignore that because I've got another <laughs> 1,999 indicators I can also figure out. 
And so what Hu Jintao did was he figured out that the types of indicators that local officials relied on most were certain types of party orders, and they were things that held them personally accountable. And then he said that these four measures as part of building new socialist countryside are what you'll be held accountable for. Building new socialist countryside is his signature rural program. It's like just thrown into everything. In Australia, we used to call it, you know, working families when I worked for the government. Like, you know, everything's about working families. Everything in China was about building a socialist countryside. And so one of the four measures was you must have a rural insurance scheme. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that he had absolutely no input from the Ministry of Health, as far as I can tell, because the Ministry of Health, 2003, 2004, 2005, 2006, kept saying, our priorities are AIDS prevention, boosting primary care. They don't make any mention of social health insurance other than their like footnote 62 on page 84 <laughs> of the annual report. And then suddenly in 2007, 2008, when again, Cocky Ryan is submitting his thesis saying it's a terrible idea. 2008, they're like, oh my God, by the way, we enrolled the whole country in a social health insurance scheme. Uh, as I said before, by the way, the 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 split between employer and universal healthcare uh, in the cities they used employer healthcare. So China's employer health insurance was was like the cities already had slightly better health insurance at this period, but if you're in the countryside, you were stuffed. And so think about how many and that's 800 million people that got enrolled in two years, and the way they did it was they said to every single local. Part, a county party secretary, you'll be held accountable for this as part of building a new socialist countryside. This is the bank account. The money for the insurance scheme must be in the bank account and you must promulgate the following documents telling every party member that they must go and teach people about health insurance. So, you know, they have to go out and just, just like in the old days where it's, they went out and they said, oh, are you sick? Do you have a fever? If so, segregate yourself, try these Chinese medicine. They did the same thing where they sent out all these party cadres and they said, hey, guys, like, you've got health insurance now. Congratulations. Um, it was incredibly minimal. It was like 10 RMB a year to sign up. And then the local government had to chip in 10 RMB. And then they said, the government said, okay, if there's that 20 RMB per person in the bank account, we, the central government, will also give that bank account 10 RMB. And then what they did was they kept the local fee to join very low. It's up to 30 or 40 RMB now. And then they just kept increasing the amounts of the governments and the central government chipped into it. So it's a point now where, you know, you have actually quite a sizable insurance fund at the level of the county. It's guaranteed by the government. And that means that when you go see a doctor, you still have this problem you have to pay up front, which is regressive and a bad system. And I really wish China would change it. But you do have that advantage of after you've seen the doctor, you get your money back or you get some money back. And something is better than nothing. And after 30 years of watching doctors put a layer on their houses, you, you're pretty happy to take something rather than nothing. Um, sure. By the way, before we go too much further, because it sounds like I'm bashing doctors, you know, doctors in China are, are also modern heroes. <laughs> they have to see 70-odd patients a day on average, which is a lot more than the, the sort of internationally recommended guidelines. They are given pressure to raise revenues from above from, you know, from say hospital administrators who themselves are responding to a system which forces them to raise their own revenues rather than being funded by the state. Like it's, you know, for, for a communist country, it's an incredibly capitalist uh, hospital system. 
yeah. about 6%. Um, most of the studies we can actually get access to of hospital revenues come from government revenues. So you have to raise all your own funds. And so it, it's, it's, you know, it's always been on tenterhooks. But linking all of this back to Wuhan, if you think your healthcare is expensive and you have that problem of these barefoot doctors not becoming necessarily cloth, cloth, you know, cloth shoes doctors, as, as Deng Xiaoping talked about, you also have a system whereby if you get sick, you don't want to go to your local doctor. You want to go to a hospital because as more and more money has come in, as China has trained more and more doctors, its hospitals are really good often. Wuhan Central Hospital, where Dr. Li, who we talked about at the start, worked, is a bloody good hospital. That means that when you have an epidemic or something like that, uh, you know, like in, in China in general, 80, 80% of, of most eight outpatient visits are, are to a hospital, you know, everybody, half of all patients want to go to a three-star, a, a AAA rating hospital, which is the best. Well, they're, they're better, but, but it's pretty hard to get into them. They tend to be reserved for the top leaders, and we can rant about that another time. And so you you have this thing where if you have an, a, an epidemic or you have a panicked population where it's like, oh, my God, I have a fever, people don't go talk to their local GP or, or, or equivalent cheaper doctor who might be able to tell them, like, oh, you're okay, just go home. They go flood hospitals. And so part of why I was so hard on this period after when Dr. Lee got sick, when the Wuhan government did nothing, where they, they gave no public health advice, which may or may not be a good idea in a pandemic. What they didn't do is prepare test kits. What they didn't do is tell people to go see GPs. What they didn't do is give people the primary health advice to be like, this is what happens if you're sick. Don't waste hospital beds. And so people die. And that is the really nasty pointy wedge. I've given you a tale of sort of policy triumph in that you've managed to enroll people in insurance, but it's just the start because... You've then got to reform the whole healthcare system. And that, I mean, and China knows this. It, it puts out many really good, technically well-informed descriptions of how healthcare works. It knows its system backwards. And I'm probably more forgiving of, the, say, somewhere like the WHO, when you go and you talk to the Chinese healthcare system and you see the measures they put in place, they follow all world protocols. But then the problem is, of course, when you pass them down to lower levels and they get involved in a local political economy, and also where people just have a culture of going to a hospital when they're sick. You know, it's like the old Mike Tyson line. No, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And this epidemic, unfortunately, has been that punch in the mouth. And um, yeah, which is a, a real tragedy, frankly. I want to come back to the more structural points that this this whole story we've been talking to about healthcare explains about the, the party system. Yeah. So. Talk about the sort of reporting structures, why they're set up in this way, and more broadly about the relationship between the local and, 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 and central governments. Sure. Um, look, no one knows why. Uh, it's partly because Mao got in and he inherited a lot of things from the, the Kuomintang who completely, who, who, who had been running the country beforehand, most of the country. And they had in turn taken things from partly from uh, the Japanese-occupied part of, the, of, of China. And then so Mao basically put a system together where he decided he would be half um, Chichuan, the, the, the first emperor of, of China, and he would be half Lenin. And, and so what he... But he wanted to extend his reach further than any Chinese leader had before. 
and he wanted the reach of the state to go all the way down to people. Um, before there'd always been two laments of Chinese emperors, which is one, the second our word leaves the gates of the palace we live in, it sort of disappears into the ether and we don't know what happens and we can't trust the information, it comes back and actually we're not very powerful. And two is that everything becomes about, therefore, ensuring that your local government representatives are smart and good and just because you have no way of telling them what to do most of the time. That became a real issue in the later periods of, you know, as we get towards modern Chinese history, depending how you count modern, you know, as you get to present day China in that the size of these areas becomes very large and then the person responsible for them held accountable for anything that happens remains one person. And so Mao gets in with a good sense of wanting to support the countryside and therefore his way of thinking I need to support the countryside is by extending the party all the way down to the countryside as in adding in another administrative level uh, which is called the township and then trying to find a way to run the different layers and so China ended up with uh, it goes center goes to province province goes to municipality municipality goes to county county goes to township township goes to village the villages were all taken from basically just where people lived and they're a bit of a mess. And then the village has, you know, you have the people in the village. And, and of course, in the cities, they have corresponding administrative levels. And so each of them has the powers delegated to them in something that came from Chinese history, whereby you can put out pretty much anything you want. You can put out any document you want. You can do more or less anything you want. But you, an individual who's the party secretary responsible for that area, one of those five, you know, jurisdictions levels I just mentioned, will be held accountable for anything that happens under your watch. Unsurprisingly, that is really hard to extend out across millions upon millions of people. And, you know, to this today, there are 3000 counties. And some of those counties have been counties for more than 2000 years as well. It's kind of amazing when you go to the offices and they show you the, the record. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, 2000 years. <laughs> and so Mao was stuck there wanting everyone to do what he said but also having a bunch of smart people um sort of whispering in his ear saying we need a more rational system of government and they were people like Deng Xiaoping and people like Yoshachi who was then killed by uh, well he wasn't directly killed by Mao who's thrown in a jail cell and denied of all medical treatment and died um very tragically uh his son grew up with um Xi Jinping, China's current ruler, and is considered one of his best friends. And Mao listened to those guys until probably the mid-50s. And in the mid-50s, they put out a fairly controversial proposal that Mao rejected, which is a way of sort of rationalizing these divisions and making it so that they're more institutionalized and a bit less what Mao says goes. And that was the 1956 Congress, Party Congress. And then Mao turned away from that, made things much more about individual rule, much more capricious. You had things like the Cultural Revolution. Um, but Deng Xiaoping still remembered all these old formulations and then dusted them off when he got back into power in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. And they, in essence, are, are halfway between communism and halfway between Chinese history which is this accountability system of one leader from the top, you know, who's in charge of that jurisdiction, but below them a 
dizzying array of government and party agencies, uh, many of which conflict and overlap and have sort of various, but each of which uh, report to the head of that jurisdiction of that area through a standing committee of eight to 12 people. Most of them have party official roles. Some of them have government roles. And then they also have this standing committee role. And that position on the standing committee that the head of the unit of the, of the jurisdiction is also held personally accountable for anything that is screwed up by the standing committee. And so Mm. then they, they have to really trust their standing committees, or at least what they do is they give the crap jobs to the less competent members of their standing committees. The MPC or the, the, the people's consultative conference, for example, is one of them, which by the way, is an interesting footnote because they are of course in charge of the uh, ominous United front that everyone is so worried about, which is partly why like, when you meet Central United Front officials, they, they seem a bit different from when you meet local United Front officials and they're sort of a bit ditzy often and you're like going, are you really what we're so scared of? Like, what's going on? <laughs> At all. Um, so because you're held accountable for what the Standing Committee does, you then have these these all these different agencies reporting in and that, that all seems very communist and you're like, oh, yeah, great, right, and that's easy to understand. Then things get a bit tricky because, of course, you still have the Leninist part, which is that if you have a central agency or a committee or a government agency or a central party organ, uh, like a sort of think of think about like a ministry, but it, it works for the Communist Party rather than for the government. They have to have a corresponding ministry or party organ in each of these jurisdictions I've laid out going down to the county. So to give a more concrete example, Central Ministry of Health has to have a provincial Bureau of Health which then reports the central and then the provincial has the municipal Bureau of Health reporting up into that, which then of course has the county. And you have this system, which they call like horizontal, horizontal, up, up, and and so you have to report across into the standing committee and you have to report up to your sort of boss in the jurisdictional level above. And so again, imagine if you are in, I'll take Cincinnati. This is going to show my poor US geography, but you report to Ohio. Um, this is Cincinnati, Ohio, rather than the other Cincinnati's that exist in the United States. And you have a report up to, you know, you're the Cincinnati sort of health bureau. You report to the Ohio health bureau, but you also report across to the Cincinnati city government. And unsurprisingly in China, a lot of the issues come from the fact that the local government, as in this local party secretary, is always going to have more sway than somebody sitting in the jurisdiction, the level above. They can control so many elements of your life in a way that the person above just can't. They sign off on your assessments. They tell you what sort of party tasks you have. They determine what kind of car you drive. They determine how good the school your kids go to are. They have a huge amount of power over your everyday existence. And that is always one of the issues because you see these wonderfully written central government ministry of health documents and you're like wow that's bloody good i wish i wrote that and then you go down to the local levels to see how they're implemented and you're like that is not what it says on paper at all (laughs) one little bit and where to go back a step hu jintao was a bit of a genius was that he was the first person to figure out how you can basically use party incentives to get government outcomes while using government bureaucrats to write the rules because they're really good at that because, you know, like to get to the Central Ministry of Health, you've got to know a lot about health. Um, 
to write the sort of specification documents to make these vague party decrees that everyone cares a lot about work. And this is a model that uh, Xi Jinping studied very hard and he uses it himself. He has a huge focus on the party and on using party techniques to make sure everyone does what he wants. But then he's also obsessed with laws, i.e. government documents, that you know, legislation that is universal, that affects everybody. Um, and so he gets these great drafters drafting laws as a way to specify what he wants. And then he uses these party levers to make everyone jump to it and be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to listen to what Xi Jinping says. That's, that's, that's important with a capital I. So you want to elaborate a little bit on that last point of the Xi sort of like partyizing the government, which is a theme people talk about fairly frequently? Look, people often conflate a whole bunch of things because this is the issue of China. It's big, it's messy, it's complicated. There's lots of actors, there's lots of documents. Um, and to make something happen, you can either tell someone to do it, i.e. use an actor, or you can put out a document doing it. The problem is to get to a county, you can't tell someone what to do. It just it gets lost in the noise. You've got so many layers of transmission that by the time it gets down there, what you think, you know, you said build a hospital, it becomes like eat up Martha, eat your greens. The documents are so fundamental to everything because they are where you first start. Like, And there are class upon class upon class of documents. There are different orders of how you should read the newspaper. There's different orders of how the TV stations represent what has been given to them through the system that is run actually by the newspaper. There is different classes of government documents. There are different classes of party documents. There are different classes of local government and local party and local media documents. There's a lot of documents. And what she has done is two things. Firstly, he's gotten rid of the system of accountability that was the reason for making this system, which is this way of if everything is, if your local leader is held accountable for everything that happens in that jurisdiction, it's much easier to be like, yo, it wasn't our fault. It was that idiot at the county who just failed to listen to orders properly. Even though we gave them no orders and the orders are really vague, but that doesn't matter. They didn't listen. <laughs> Blame them. And she, and, and as part of blaming them, they basically sat down and said, Dong Xiaoping basically sat down and said, right, we either hang together or we hang separately. We have to make sure that uh, everything that goes wrong is, is the product of a committee so committee documents count much more than any individual document, even if it comes from Deng Xiaoping or Xi Jinping himself. Actually, the committee document counts for much more. And so that led to this thing called collective responsibility system, which is basically where, and it's written into the party constitution, it's written into the document you sign when you join the party, like you sign up to buy into this system. And Xi Jinping has ditched that or he's changed that system. So he's added something both through his actions and then he formally added it to the party rules a year ago where there must be an individual responsible as well as collective decision-making. And then secondly, he's made himself the individual responsible for a whole bunch of stuff. He basically came in and he went, Hu Jintao, I like how you use the party. Love that. You know, great work getting, you know, the new social countryside built, but not so good for corruption, even though you had an anti-corruption campaign. It's crap, might not be better. And... Secondly, I'm going to put myself in charge because your model of consensus leadership, your model of having nine people on the Politburo Standing Committee, your model of allowing people and delegating power to them so they can do their jobs. I don't like that model. I like my model, which is much more an older model, a Mao, you know, a Mao style model, going back to that point I was making about the 1950s, where they had to choose which way to go, institutional or individual. Instead, he says, I'm large, I'm in charge. Everyone listen to what I say. 
And so the entire Xi administration has been this battle between local officials, him thinking that local officials don't do what he says, and local officials trying to somehow find workarounds and, and patch together solutions that run China as well as they can. Um, and that's hard to sort of reconcile. And so she has used various methods to do it. And one of the methods is, is party methods. So like a thing that outsiders worry about a lot is sort of she's personal visibility, which we've discussed, which is getting rid of this collective responsibility. Another part of Xi's methods is he uses party rules and party decrees, i.e. you do this because you're a Communist Party member, rather than government policies, which are much more familiar and easy for us to understand as outsiders. I.e. if you want to change your healthcare system, you say, as a party member under the party's patriotic health campaign, you should go to everyone's house and check your temperature, instead of saying, as a government official who works in the Ministry of Health, is hereby decreed that you should go to everyone's house and take their temperature. And the party levers are less understandable, A, and B, frankly, efficient at running modern governments because communist party methods don't tend to work as well in modern economies as government policies, um, as been acknowledged by many and many years of history. And so she has moved towards party methods because he thinks that that makes it more easier for everyone to do what he says, which is in many ways, a hangover from that Hu Jintao period where they managed to get health insurance working, as I said. Um, the law of unintended consequences remains a very powerful one in China. And then the final sure. part that she has done is he's been like, okay, I get that I'm using party methods. And the problem with party methods is it doesn't always extend to the whole people. And so that's why he's pushed laws very hard. And so you get this odd thing where it's like he is individualizing power to an extent, or to a large extent, he is getting things away from committees. He is using communist party techniques. He's, you know, singing red songs. He's doing things that like mobilization techniques that you know, other leaders used that he then got rid of. And what's happened, therefore, is that, oh, and finally, he's, and what's happened, therefore, is he's been like, right, I need to somehow get this to everybody, to the whole country. And so he's used legislation to do that. So he's partly rule of law, partly old school communism and it's a pretty unusual mix and so unsurprisingly a people don't like it and particularly the our normal interlocutors as outsiders really don't like it because these are all the technocrats and the people who have risen up through the system through really knowing what they're doing as opposed to from singing red songs all the time they've been one of the big losers of the xi jinping administration and secondly it's really hard for us because you have to know bit by bit, you know, you have to look at every single decree and sort of figure out what he's doing in his mosaic style where you have to understand the party methods and you also have to understand the government methods and you have to understand where they contradict each other. And so I think a lot of people around the world right now are being like, well, Xi Jinping is X because that's the category we have. And you're like, going, well, sometimes he is and sometimes he isn't. It's kind of tricky, which makes for crap podcasting. But that is a, a sort of... Xi Jinping in a nutshell, why he's kind of a dictator and he's kind of not. You want to tie this all up with a with a national security bow? How do these themes apply to a military and, and uh, defense issues? Because she, they, they apply a couple of ways. Firstly, because Xi Jinping, this whole system of rule and, and silos and up and down and all these things, it runs exactly the same in the military, except the military is not allowed after that Cultural Revolution period I was talking about where the military actually, or a military representative actually ran the party and the government for that local area. 
the military has has very distinctly its own system and there are very strict rules and they are followed um and if they're not followed well they're using an excuse to fire you if they want to fire you anyway partly for not following this rule it's a very serious rule is that the military can't talk to the government or the party and that the only party like civilian who can tell the military what to do is Xi Jinping because he's the head of the military body. But the military has exactly the same problems we're talking about. Like the thing about understanding the model of China is that it's the model that also applies to the military. So for example, in the military, you have the same odd split between the party and the government, except it's between the party and the fighting folk. So every military unit has a party commissar who's responsible for ideology and for stirring up the patriotic wishes of the masses, i.e. soldiers, and you have somebody who tells you how to shoot a gun or makes the aeroplane fly. And that structure, that dual leadership structure, goes all the way to the very top. And then the only person above that structure who isn't competing, so to speak, between party and, and security doctrine is Xi Jinping himself. I mean, it's so bizarre that they actually have two military commissions, both of which Xi Jinping is head of, but one is a government military commission, which reports budgets and things like that and is used to go to the National People's Congress so that you can make sure you get enough money to buy guns. And then the other one is a party one. And the two commissions just get around this problem by meeting all the time, which works really great, except every five years when you have new people coming on, the new people from the party start six months before the government. So you have this weird overlap that no one has quite figured out how it works, where you have like basically four committees meeting at once. And that isn't, you know possibly a boon for chairmakers in central party organs, but it's not the best for making decent decisions. And so that's the thing that's so powerful about understanding like the model of central local relations in China is that it's not just healthcare and it's not just economics and it's not just Xi Jinping. This is a pattern that we see re- repeating again and again and again. And it's one of the great frustrations. It's also one of the great joys of working on China is you can learn so much from reading a PLA study often and be like, oh, no way, that's so interesting. I never knew they fixed that problem like that. And in the same way that when I was working on that sort of stuff, I would learn an enormous amount by going back to my academic training on social health insurance schemes and being like, I wonder if this also applies when I look at this odd unit in in the military. Um, And that's the thing. It's a a playbook. It's more than a playbook. It's, It's like a sort of Bill Belichick style playbook that like gets overridden everybody. Sorry, Pats fans. Um, That overrides and and in essence is a cheat code that can film all the other teams that overrides everything and applies in national security and in the government. The other part that's also, you've got to remember national security is national security isn't just the military. You know, a lot of our national security worries with China now um, in Australia and in the US and in other countries, it, uh, worries about tech companies, worries about bodies like the United Front, which is a party body, which up until about a year or two ago had also corresponding government agencies responsible for various things. And in essence, its job is to be nice to foreigners so that foreigners will say nice things about China and, and not cause division. These are seen as national security issues, but they follow government and party rules. And so that divide between China national security and China everyone else is is kind of often an arbitrary one and it's becoming more and more not a divide 
as we sit in sort of trying to make sense of this incredibly complicated system. How's that? Uh, where in the bureaucracy would you personally like to sit in your alternate life born as a uh, as a party member? Uh, it depends on what I want to get done versus how much I want my head attached to my body. Um, if you want to get something done, county party secretary, they have nearly total powers. They have quite large areas and they can do an insane amount of good. Being a county party secretary is extraordinarily a stressful job. Um, yeah, so I would... You know, if I'm feeling altruistic, I'd take that. Other than that, I mean, go large. I would be, I'd be Wang Yang. What a great job. I mean, you just wander around, open a few conferences, listen to what people say. You're allowed to travel a fair bit still, despite being ostensibly not really in charge of anything foreign affairs-y. Uh, you get to keep your gray hairs. Yeah, Wang Yang for the win. She should be great. a bit stressful, right? Like you're always checking your food. Yeah, it's too much. It's too, it's too much on your back. And also, like, you know, the clothes, I mean, the wardrobe choices. Ugh, no flexibility. No gray hair at all. Very fun. So next, um, you know, I feel like I am reading these sorts of documents, Google Translate plus 20%, and want to improve that. So do you have any advice for students working their ways through trying to understand the system and and how best to sort of train your eyes and mind to 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 understand what these documents can tell you? First, to train your eyes. I mean in that sense of sketch it out. Like, like often what is in the document is not what matters. I mean, I, I know like there's a great, I was, I was very lucky. I spent a few years working for an absolute genius called Jeremy Barmay, who was himself trained by an absolute genius called Pierre Rickman, who wrote under Simon Lays and is, is sort of the grandfather of this stuff. And Simon Lays once wrote about reading party documents and it was like chewing rhinoceros sausage and swallowing giant liters of indigestible sawdust. And that's because, like, if you read it word for word, like, you can be like, oh, oh, my God, it's a duet, it's a this, it's a that. Oh, it's very confusing. Always start with the metadata. Who issued the document? What rank is the document? When was it issued? Who is following it? What binding powers does it have? Just basic stuff like that is really fundamental, but it's really, I mean, it, look, it takes a while to have that sort of understanding. I like diagrams personally. I love a good diagram because the Chinese system is so regular and I'm a bit stupid. And so I really like having a piece of paper where I can just, you know, dot by dot be like, okay, who said what, when, who said what, when, what rank is that? And then I can also map out documents because I know where everyone sits. And then the documents themselves, there are there are ways of knowing what the rank of the documents is. I, I, I've worked on this a long time. Always start with the metadata is advice. Piece of advice number one. Piece of advice number two is, you know, take them seriously. As in, if you keep looking at a document and a document confirms a giant suspicion you have, it's probably wrong. Like, you have to always... Remember, again, start with the metadata. The level of specificity of the document changes according to the amount of power you have. The more power you have, you know, ceteris paribus, the less specific the document you issue will be. If you're Xi Jinping, you're not going to sit there and be like, this is what I want to happen in this part of Xinjiang, right? That doesn't mean you don't know about it. I'm not trying to make any claims about Xinjiang. I'm pleased before I'm killed, you know, on Twitter by various people. 
I'm just saying that like when we read documents, it's not enough to just like the the dodge that the Chinese system always has is to be like, well, that was a bad county. Right. And the challenge we always have is to take factoids from county documents, say, and showing how they build up to a bigger picture. And so it actually, for me, makes it easier to be like, if I make a mistake on this particular document, you know, if Google Translate mistranslates, it doesn't matter. Like there will be other documents. Believe me, there are always documents. You can find a document saying just about anything in China if you look hard enough. In fact, Google's a very good way to do that. Um, and, and some very good books. Ju Blanchett, for example, is excellent at searching uh, using Chinese phrases uh, in his book uh, with OUP, Well Worth a Read. Uh, he, he does some very cool stuff with this, for example. There's always a way you can find out what, you know, you can always find a sort of factoid. But I actually find it kind of reassuring to be like, look, there'll be another thousand documents. What I'm trying to figure out here is where the vibe of this document fits into this broader system. Is this somebody just, you know, going off piste or is this the actual ski path that the leaders have declared you have to go down? Um, and, and in that sense, just give yourself a break because like there's so many smart young people coming through now with amazing Chinese like you, like, you know, they're, they're all over Washington. They're, they're coming through an Australian system and, it's always this thing where it's like, ah, but this says this in Chinese. And you're like going, it does, but how does that sit into the bigger picture? You know, because otherwise you just drive yourself crazy. Literally, I've been there. Um, sort of picking up factoids from this document and that document. Think almost less about documents and think more about a mosaic, which only you, you know, which is your mosaic, right? It's your question. No one else is trying to answer it or or to put more, you know, or, or a group of people are trying to answer it, but you know exactly what part of that mosaic you want to make. Where mm. does this document sit in the mosaic? And are there a couple of points that I can figure out that help that and then go to the next document? Um, and gradually, bit by bit, the pictures start to become clearer. And then when you go back to the specific documents, it's amazing. You're like, oh my gosh. Wow, I missed, how did I miss that? Did I, did I not read the Chinese properly? Did I... And then after a while, I was just like, it doesn't matter, Ryan, just move on. Like, no one cares. <laughs> Literally, no one cares. <laughs> Even academic journals well, do not care. <laughs> and that's their job. They're meant to care. Well, we're going to end it on this note of utter hopelessness. Ryan, thanks so much for being a part of Johnny Talk. Thanks for having me. 